literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode 19 of Love That Album. Morris Bushtinsky speaking to you here. And over in the bar in Adelaide is Mr. Michael Persh. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Morris. How are you doing? I'm doing quite fine, thank you. Now, uh, a little bit of an explanation is needed for uh, this introduction, folks. Um, we are still going to be going ahead with our album discussion. Uh, and this episode's focus is going to be on Billy Joel's album, The Stranger. But uh, we've, we're sort of doing things in a bit of a roundabout way. Uh, Michael and I have actually already done the rest of the show uh, about a week and a half ago when Michael was out of his bar in Adelaide and in my home in Melbourne. And we're going to be playing that part of the show for you in a little while. But last week, uh, our time as we're recording this, was quite a big week uh, in the world of rock and roll with uh, three very sad events but one very happy event. And we just, we thought rather than sort of doing the usual thing of speaking about what we've been listening to and what concerts we've been going to, we thought, well, there was so much there that we thought it was well worth our time to um, have a few words to say about each of uh, the events from last week. So we'll go bit by bit. And um, probably the first uh, item of note that, um, well, for people of your and my vintage, Michael, uh, it was a very sad passing of uh, Greg Ham. Indeed, indeed, very sad indeed, and and it still hasn't come out exactly what happened. I I, I read in the press on the weekend that that the um the police have, have sort of ruled out any sort of foul play, which I think mm. they sort of do anyway. But um, I haven't seen anything else come out, so uh, it's very sad indeed. And and it's whether whether you love or or you know don't love men at work, they they were. You know, did such huge things for Australian music. It's it's almost sort of um, you know our unofficial national anthem. Some mm, of those. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't really a Men at Work fan, but every person in Australia, uh, well, every music fan in Australia, I'm sure had some opinion about the court case that went on last year. And for those of you outside Australia who might not have heard about it, um. There was a music publisher called Larrikin Music that owned the printing publishing rights to uh, a folk song, an Australian folk song written by a school teacher in the 1930s called Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree. Now, that song is pretty much injected into every Australian's DNA. You know, we hear it about a thousand times at school, um, in primary school while growing up. Um, but, uh, Greg Ham played like a portion of the melody as part of um, what he did with the flute in the song Down Under. And for years, you know, we never really sort of thought much about it. And then about five years ago, um, a quiz show 
uh, on the uh, ABC network here in Australia. Uh, it was it was a rock quiz, uh, not rock quiz, the show rock quiz, a, a rock and roll quiz show called Spicks and Specs um, that just happened to make a passing comment about the similarity between uh, the uh, the riff that Greg Ham was playing and Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. And the publisher, word got back to the publisher about this, and they thought, oh, oh, they're right. Well, let's try and sue them. Let's try and make some money. To the best of my knowledge, they weren't working on behalf of the estate of the songwriter. They were only working on behalf of themselves. So there's arguments going back and forth about legal use, copyright law, fair use, um, and whether or not this court case should have gone ahead. Now, as rock and roll fans, it's all very easy for us to say, well, you know, the whole thing is a disgrace. But, you know, what's what's your take, Michael? I mean, where does fair use start or end? Or you know, under what circumstances uh, does someone deserve to be sued, if at all, for um, adopting a melody? Or uh, was this one of those cases, do you think? Or, or, or was this just beyond ridiculous? Well, my opinion, it's, it's way beyond ridiculous. It's laughable. It's just, yeah, and, and the... And not, not that I really followed the court case very much, but it was in the media so much. And it was all done by people who had no musical knowledge at all. It was just being counter lawyers, and it was just mm. disgusting. Mm. And, and I think the song you were referring to was Overkill. That was it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah, and I, I, you know, I guess the, the, uh, the, un, the underlying theory at the moment is that, um, you know, is that Greg's taken his own life because of all that. And that's just disgusting. It really is. I hope, um, yeah, I hope these guys from uh, Larrikin choke on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I mean, my first my first thought after the court case, before we knew anything about potentially Greg Ham's depression, and that hasn't been proven either way just yet, but it's certainly been suggested a lot uh, in the media and, um, uh, you know, by friends of Ham and I think maybe even Colin Hay uh, had gone and made note in an interview that uh, Greg had been completely devastated and as a result of having to meet legal costs, he uh, had to sell his house. Um, and so, you know, after having done, you know, quite right out of uh, work, royalties from men at work for years, um, he finds himself without a without a home that he owns. Um, I mean, look, he, I think for years he'd been working as a, as a school teacher, one of the public schools around his area in, in uh, Carlton. Uh, and he seemed quite happy with that, that um, uh, yeah, this this whole thing, I guess, would have left a, a very bitter, very depressed taste in my mouth, something that you know, we can't even begin to fathom. Um, and, and, I, and I think people, you know, assume that these guys are, you know, rolling in it, that they're, that they're building around in limousines and living in mansions. They're not. Like, they did not make that much money out of all this in the grand scheme of things. Well, not in the long term, because I guess, you know, we always, always say that, you know, musicians don't have a compulsory superannuation scheme. So unless they invest really wisely from the start, um, they're going to uh, end up with not very much many years later on. And, and as I said, if, if, he might have still been doing all right from whatever royalties were coming in or you know, from you know, the, the job that he had teaching in the, pro, uh, in the uh, secondary school. But... Um, the fact that he had to sell his house to meet legal costs uh, for something which, you know, as 
I think we both agree was ridiculous to begin with, um, was a complete injustice. And um, I mean, look, yeah, once again, the lawyers working for Larrikin, it seemed like they were just after the buck. They said, listen, judge, here's the melody for Kookaburra. Here's the melody for um, for uh, that uh, that flute riff in, in Down Under. They sound the same, don't you think? Um, oh, and, and you know, the, the judge who probably has no or little or no knowledge of uh, you know how rock music or jazz music, for that matter, works, don't realise that you know, in, in jazz music and in, in certain instances in rock music, they're, they're appropriating other melodies all the time, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. I mean, okay, the big case that we can, I'm sure you know, you'd also think it would be My Sweet Lord, George Harrison's um, mm. take off of uh, She's So Fine. And well, you know, that certainly did seem to be a riff off. But, but here, th- this is, like, earlier I, I went back thinking, I've got, I've got a whole bunch of um, albums by a great jazz saxophone player called Dexter Gordon. And um, I remembered that uh, one of the albums that he ha- that I have of his is called The Swingin' Affair. And there's this uh, old standard that he plays called It'll Have to Do Until the Real Thing Comes Along. And if you listen carefully, in one point, he appropriates the melody during the solo of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Now, if I thought about it, I'm sure I could... This is the one that came to me. I'm sure if I thought about it, there'd be a whole bunch of others that I could quote, both in the rock and jazz field. But no one would think to accuse Dexter of, oh, you've gone and stolen this other melody of Over the Rainbow and you haven't given them credit. We're going to sue your estate. Um, because in jazz circles, that's a common thing, and it's just seen as being accepted. But that's within music circles, not within legal circles. You just think, no, purely a case of the law. You want you want to use this, you have to use it. But even in the law, they've been saying in the media that there's what's called fair use, where you create something new, um, where it sounds significantly, it sounds different in some way, um, then it can't be it can't be seen as a matter of plagiarism and and I don't I don't think I've met anyone who's a music fan I haven't spoken to anyone who's legal but I don't think there's anyone who's a music fan that has seriously thought that Greg Ham thought oh this gym is in the public domain I think I'll rip this off and claim it as our own um, indeed indeed well maybe you should give the lovely people at Larrikin a call and see if you can get ten percent of their uh... You know, they'll uh, try and get somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do you own the rights to uh, over the rainbow? Oh, as a matter of fact, we'll do. Well, go, go suck on this. Um, I, yeah. I haven't. I have. I know Colin Hayes had a little bit to say in the media, and I, I really haven't read or, or heard anything he said. But I'm really interested to see what he says because, as a as a fairly outspoken Scotsman, I don't think he'll be pulling <laughs> any punches. And I, I have a lot of respect for Colin Hayes. A uh, a very interesting character, and I'm going to be very keen to see what he's got to say. Well, Google it, because there was definitely stuff printed in uh, The Age in Melbourne last week. He had been um, uh, he had been contacted, I don't know if it was by The Age, or they were quoting a radio interview that he'd gone and made, but he definitely had stuff to say. Um, and, uh, look, I don't want to go terribly much further into it, but I'd also be interested, if you're listening to this out there and you have any thoughts, uh, listeners, please, you know, Write in uh, to um, Michael or myself. Uh, you know, the, the email addresses will be on the, on the website. Uh, but um, yeah, look, I, I know that there's probably been a lot of talk over the years with uh, with rap music and sampling. I mean, that's a whole new area. That's a whole new frontier unto itself. And 
Um, I, I'm really not sure exactly how much of that, uh, how many people have been sued in that area. Uh, but I, I mean, I remember, you know, there was, was it the whole case of Ice Ice Baby just being um, under pressure? I mean, Queen's been sampled a lot. But um, I don't know, you know, were, were those guys sued? Was it legal? Did they create something significantly new? Uh, and that was actually taking the Queen sample. That wasn't that wasn't sort of like you know taking their melody and someone else playing it. This was uh, look, I don't know. Um, anyway, but you get the feeling, dear listener, that Michael and I think that this is an incredible injustice and it's ended all tragically. So well, um, you know, the sad thing is that. This is how you know one of the main things he'll be remembered for if if this is the case of of how it, you know that he's taken his own life because of all this and that's 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 really sad for for a musician that's you know as I said love him or hate what he's done he's a you know a fine musician he should not be remembered for something as ridiculous as this no well look I, I have a feeling that amongst music fans he won't be remembered for oh wow yeah he. he He's uh, the guy who ripped off cookabarasuits in the old gum tree. I have a feeling that amongst the Men at Work fans and people who, you know, like pop music in general, will be remembered as, you know, one member of a very successful uh, rock band that, you know, did something that very few, um, oh, I think, you know, how many Australian acts had gone and done before, and that was, you know, conquered the American charts, um, you know, albeit all too briefly, but... Um, but, you know, for, for a time there, they conquered the world and they seemed all fairly happy. Um, so I think he'll be more remembered for that than um, for uh, uh, you know, the, the whole court case. But certainly amongst the music fraternity, you can't say about the legal fraternity. But if you're a lawyer out there and uh, a musical, more particularly, if you're, a, if you're a lawyer who's a music fan, um, please send me an MP3, send me an email. Uh, I'd love to hear your take on this. I want to hear what you have to say. I mean, taking away for a moment, you know, the tragedy where this is all ended off. But just from a legal perspective, was this, was what Larrikin did uh, correct? Um, anyway, yeah, be interested in that. Okay, we'll move on. Um, so, yeah, as I said last week, uh, we'll, we'll leave the happy thing for last. Um, so there were another two uh, uh, sad deaths, not tragic in that way because it wasn't someone taking their own life, but also very sad nevertheless. Uh, Jim Marshall, the man who they called the father of loud, uh, the developer of um, of uh, Marshall amplifiers passed away at the age of was it eighty eight or something like that. Yes, yes, and, and I'm not sure if he was deaf or not, but he should have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, look, here's something I look, you know, because um, uh, being you know, being a drummer and you know I never had a need for an amp, and I mean I you know, I knew that you know a lot of uh, uh, you know great guitarists like you know Page and Beck and most famously Hendrix. Use the Marshall stacks, and um, but I didn't really know much about the history of uh, of Marshall. And I went and you know, did a little bit of a look up at the uh, University of, of uh, Wikipedia yesterday. And this is something that you'll appreciate, Michael. Um, so it started out that he decided because uh, Jim Marshall was originally a drummer and a singer, and he developed his own amplifiers apparently. Because when he was playing with the big bands he was playing with, um, he wanted to be, he wanted his singing to be heard over the rest of the band. So that's when he developed his own amplifiers, developed his own stack or at least his own amplification system. So, I mean, we both certainly appreciate that as, as, uh, drummers and myself in addition to that as being a singer. And, and, uh, I just found that, I found that really fascinating. The irony is that he's, um, 
most known you know for for what guitarists have gone and done but you know they started from uh, drumming origins it's interesting isn't it yeah very interesting indeed <laughs> and, oh and and you'll like this bit of information he for a while he became a drum teacher and you know who he taught one of his great famous students was was mm. mitch mitchell oh well cool. if he taught mitch mitchell he must have been pretty fucking good indeed well that's that's a nice type as well because with a nice little Jimi hendrix tie-up mm, mm, indeed it's, uh, it's interesting the the martial amplifier they you know since spinal tap the the whole you know turn it to 11 <laughs> but, but you 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 turn in a mar- you try and play a martial amplifier on one Mm. And it sounds like a transistor radio. Yeah. You need to turn it up to halfway, which is earpiecingly loud, yeah. to actually get the damn thing to do anything. <laughs> and and so uh, yeah, the guitar player in my band can't play quietly. He bl- well, he blames his amplifier. So. <laughs> oh well, you know, I, I I think they're just using that as an excuse. They just oh. like to they like to have long hair and they like to play loud. But then again, if it's too loud, you're too long. Oh, they have long hair. <laughs> All right, so the unfortunately the uh, and the third uh, uh, the third person who last week has gone to rock and roll heaven um, is a man that we both highly admire and we spoke about I'm sure in the 300th episode of sitting in a bar in Adelaide and that's uh, the great Levon Helm. Indeed, indeed, and I actually as I actually thought. You know, I actually more of, although fantastic drummer and a great field drummer, but it was his voice that, that got me. He was just a great singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, once again, through my research at the weekend, I didn't realise that he was voted by Rolling Stone magazine in their list of 100 greatest singers. He came in at 91. Not high enough, but he was still, in their opinion, one of the top 100 singers in rock music. And just, yeah. I find nothing to argue with that. He's just got such a... Such a distinctive voice, and you you only have to hear him, you know, get and you know who it is. <laughs> mm. Look, and the wonderful thing was he was a great singer in a band which had, you know, I mean, most of them were great singers. Well, I mean, okay, well, so you know, we never heard really from from Garth Hudson and you know Robbie Robertson probably wasn't a singer, but but certainly um, uh, Lee Von Helm, Rick Danko, and Richard Manuel. Um, none of them were slouches uh, no. in the singing department. Well, but, even Robbie Robinson is not a bad singer. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, but but certainly those three were at the top. And and but you know once again as good as Danko and Manuel were, they were good. Um, it's really uh, uh, I I prefer to think Levon Helm was the lead singer of the band, and the other two were sort of like the you know the occasional singers. Um, just. Everything he sang, he just had a real touch of that southern class. Um, and, um, uh, you know, just I, I've watched The Last Waltz quite a number of times and just like seeing him, you know, putting on that groove. And we haven't mentioned, oh, I was sorry, no, you did mention like he, he was a really great field player. Um, he, he uh, I know the term is used quite a lot, but he really did have a groove. Um, uh, he just there's something funky about his playing. Um, uh, there was there, there was there, there are a lot of players who are great technicians, and there are a lot of great just a lot of great players in general. But there are very few players who I think you listen to them and you know that that's them. Um, but 
but Levon Helm, even before you heard anyone singing or you heard what the song was, you hear Helm's drumming, you know that's Helm. Certainly. I've got a CD, and I guess it's 15 years old or so, of, of uh, Levon Helm in Ringo Starr's All-Star Band, and those, oh. two, and those two together are just something out of this world. They are fantastic. I've not heard any of the uh, All Star Band stuff. So, did they did they actually like do dual drumming on some songs? Yeah, quite a lot, quite a lot. And wow, and um, yeah, this CD we've got. They do some band tunes and and obviously some some Ringo tunes. It's it's awesome, fantastic stuff. Wow, um, and and we've forgotten he was a mandolin player as well. Yes, yes, and one of my f- I I have a soft spot for the mandolin. Love yes. mandolin. I think it's been pointed out in, in um, a lot of the articles that I've been reading over the last few days that, um, you know, on the, on the one hand, we hear, you know, the name, the band, and it just seems like, well, that's a rather plain name. But on the other hand, um, the band really was such an appropriate name because they were all, you know, there was, there was no one person who stood out. Everyone had multiple talents, multiple instrumentalists, um, and they really were all, Equal, um, equal in, in proficiency, but and that's you know, really been very highly praised. I mean, I think like in the in the beginning they brought Garth Hudson into the band because you know he, they called him like the professor or something, and he he was giving all the rest of the music lessons uh, to get their chops up. But they played as a bar band for so many years. Uh, I think under Ronnie Hawkins, uh, and then playing for Bob Dylan. Although I think for a time, uh, Levon left. Um, left the group while um, they were under Bob Dylan, came back when they were doing the basement tapes. Um, uh, and and then they went into the whole music from the Big Pink and the band uh, albums. And they just worked so long as a bar band that they were just not just tight. Tight just sort of indicates that they're slick. And they, they weren't slick, but they, they weren't a group of five instrumentalists. They sounded cohesive like a lot of bands absolutely can't um and real i think that without the band um tom petty and the heartbreakers wouldn't sound like they do uh bruce springsteen and the e street band wouldn't sound like they do um who else um when we finish this i'll think of about another 10 but those are the first two that come to my mind yeah, well bob dylan agrees with you because i remember he he bought um Tom Petty out here in the eighties and the uh, yes, I, I remember. Him I saying, saw them. Yeah, I, I did too, and it was a great show. And and he uh, he did make comment that uh, the Heartbreakers were the first decent band, American band since the band. <laughs> mm. uh, just, so on a personal thing, how do you think that like any time that you'd ever listened to Levon play or like watched him in in the Last Waltz, which incidentally I believe he hated hated. Um, uh, as a movie, but uh, that's another story. But do you ever feel that you watched, you know, like you'd steal little licks or little little things that um, that Levon would do because he, he was he really was very distinctive. There were things that he did over and over again, uh, and there, you know, little Levon you know, the sand rolling down the roof, you know, with a with with, with his uh, drum roll. So he he'd sort of like have a little little roll leading into a into a kick into a kick accentuation. Um, it's, yeah, it's subtleties that were all his own, and that's a pro- it's probably only drummers that notice things like that. Mm, mm. <laughs> and well, I, see, I remember you know, when The Last Waltz came out, I was probably only 
15 and I, 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 I knew of the band but didn't really know that much and and I do actually have a copy of it and I I must admit I it didn't do anything for me at all hmm. but but over the years I'd sort of gone back and um, you know discovered the the real band albums those first you know couple of albums and yep. really turned my attitude around but there was a there was a TV program and I can't remember the name of it, but they, they, it was like, I think it was classic albums or something like that. Yes, and they, yes. They'd actually go back and, and pull an album apart and get the people to talk about it. And it was fascinating. They did Big Pink and it was, was, it was really fascinating. And that really sort of opened my eyes and ears to, to how good those guys really were. Mm-hmm. No, they're absolutely fantastic. Um, all right. So, so those are our, um, uh, the, the three sad bits. Of news, although it seems like when we've been talking about, at least about Levon Helm and Jim Marshall, I guess you know it's been more in a celebratory sort of way for their, uh, for what they achieved in their lifetime, um, rather than sort of you know, concentrating much on them on, on their very sad passing. But you know, certainly both of those guys have left a real um, incredible, an indelible mark on uh, the music world of uh, the uh, the latter half of the twentieth century. Um, and um, yeah, you know, it's, we're we're a lot poorer off without their presence in the world. But certainly, they've left um, leave on with his music and, and you know, Jim Marshall with his amplifiers. And as long as as long as um, there's a kid with a guitar um, and and, uh, uh, and and an amplifier and a four track recorder in his room, then you know, the ghosts of Les Paul and Jim Marshall will be. Uh, uh, we'll be hanging around in the room with him, I think. Oh, my my son's sixteen; he's got a Marshall amplifier. It's going to be around for a long time. Yeah. Okay. So, look, the one bit of uh, happy news. I'm not sure if I've mentioned to this to you before that we should discuss this, but I'm sure we'll have a few things to uh, to say about the wonderful success of uh, Wally DeBacker, aka Gautier, who um, uh, I think last week. Uh, became um, only, well, I don't know, what, fifth, sixth, I don't know, some small number Australian uh, artist to become number one on the uh, American uh, Billboard charts. Indeed. And I I really, you know, I was familiar with his staff, and from, and, but it was only my daughter who really, um, had, you know, keep saying, you've got to listen to this guy and, and keep playing it to me. Because I, I, I'll be honest, I don't listen to the radio. And mm. it's just... It had really, you know, like I said, I was familiar, but had just about passed me by. So it was, um, yeah, it sort of snuck up on me. <laughs> well, I was, um, I was very familiar with who he was because, uh, you know, quite a number of years ago, my band, which was called The Shambles, um, did a support gig for his then band called The Basics. And, I mean, I fought desperately to get that support slot because I'd seen The Basics and they were just absolutely fantastic. I mean, great musicians. Uh, and I mean, look, they all wrote songs. In my humble opinion, uh, Wally was the best songwriter of the, the three of them. And he just had this great voice. And, you know, the brief time that I had chatting with him after the gig, uh, I just found him to be an absolutely lovely fellow. So when I heard that all of a sudden, as a solo artist, he was, you know, selling shitloads of CDs or downloads and then making headway into America. Uh, I just thought, good on you. You deserve it. I had I had a copy of uh, the latest album, um, and I, I think it's a damn fine album. And just the fact that he's 
he's making these headways into uh, into the world and you know just by doing what he does not because he's got some drive or determination to um to do whatever it takes he's just making music his way and he's enjoying it uh and sort of conquering the world just almost came incidentally it would seem yeah uh, good luck to him it shows that uh, talent wins in the end well i reckon that's worth a call mate you phone him up and you remember me from melbourne we supported <laughs> you then and look if you've got you know if you need someone to help you out at madison square garden we'll be... <laughs> do you need an acapella group oh yeah. no i don't think so you never know <laughs> Uh, come on, call call me back, call me back, <laughs> Wally. All right. Anyway, look, we've been um, we've been uh, gabbing on for the last uh, half an hour or so. Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, time will have gone back by a whole week, and you'll hear the rest of the show as uh, Michael and I originally recorded it in uh, my lounge room in Melbourne when uh, he was down here. Oh, look, give us a quick thing. Why were you here, Michael? Look, the wonders of technology. I I, I was. I was here. I was in Melbourne to a to see uh, to see yes at the Palais Theatre, which was uh, a, a near on religious experience, and I ended up um, seeing Carlton being flogged on Friday night, which was nearly as much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, for those of you who aren't in the know, Carlton, not Collingwood, Carlton, other team we all love to hate. Of course, any any of you local people out there listening who are probably saying bullshit, write in and tell me bullshit. Uh, I don't care. You can criticise me. Just write and criticise me. All right. Okay. So uh, after the break, we'll uh, go back to um, regular programming, and Michael and I will be uh, talking in some detail about uh, Billy Joel's album of 1977, The Stranger. You're listening to Love That Album. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings? Reinventions and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s driving porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast. A podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And we're back from break. Morris here. Michael there. He's not in his bar in Adelaide. He's in my house in Melbourne. <laughs> and the subject for today's podcast is Billy Joel's album, The Stranger. So I guess the good place to start is asking what was your first experience of uh, Billy Joel? Well, I guess I, I remember Piano Man, but really didn't stick with me and didn't, yeah, I, and nothing, nothing from Billy Joel that I remember until Just The Way You Are. Mm. Um, and I don't think the albums in between got much exposure here in Australia. Certainly, you know, I don't remember hearing much on the radio, but Just The Way You Are was hammered, and, I, I, you know, Around the World was just such a huge hit, and, and I don't think people remember, you know, what a huge hit that was, and it, I think Billy Joel's back catalogue became popular, certainly in Australia, from that point on. 
Uh, I certainly went back and bought you know street life serenade and turnstiles from the strength of the stranger. Mm. Um, and I guess I went just the way you are wasn't really the song that sold the album to me. Although I guess you know I don't remember loving the tune, but but when I go back now, it's it still stands up as just a wonderful tune. And the you know I will, we'll talk about it individually in a minute, but yeah that. It's it's funny how that didn't grab me, but it's it still stands out. So um, yeah, this this and I think a lot of people around the world. This was this was really the album that 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 broke Billy Joel worldwide, and as I said, certainly here in Australia. Yeah, look, I, I think you're right there. I know that um, uh, musically he sort of turned the corner, like you mentioned before, Streetlight Serenade and the Piano Man album. I mean, yeah, Piano Man was a big hit, and really, I mean, to this day, if I never hear it again, I won't be. I won't be too unhappy. Uh, I think it's been that fairly ubiquitous. Um, but Turnstiles was where he put together the band that would stand him through all the good times of the next, you know, uh, ten to fifteen odd years or so. Um, and yeah, that, that was basically the, the core band that was on on uh, Turnstiles was uh, well, obviously Joel himself, Liberty DeVito on drums, Doug Stegmaier on bass. And a fellow called Russell Javors on guitar, who was only, I think, just like maybe a session player for that album, but he sort of became, maybe about two or three albums later, he became a, um, uh, like a, a regular member of the band proper, along with a second guitar player called David, uh, I forgot my surname, David someone. Um, I should have my notes down here, but anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, the core band—that was the core band for the Turnstiles album. And then by the time the Stranger came along, he'd gone and added uh, a sax player, a guy called Richie Canata, who uh, also stayed with him for quite a few albums to come. Um, look, I really—I mean, through throughout the you know from the late seventies through to the mid eighties, I mean, his music was absolutely everywhere. And it was a long time before I realised that there were people actually out there who didn't like what he did. And I'm still wondering to this day. Well, certainly, I look beyond a certain point. I could see why his songwriting annoyed people. I certainly think that you know there were parts of an innocent man, which was all pastiche, and Stormfront, which ugh, yuck. Well, at least for me, you know, we didn't start the fire. I think it was an abomination and lazy songwriting. But for a time, albums like you know Turnstiles and The Stranger and Glass Houses and Fifty Second Street and The Nylon Curtain were just he he, he had a real flair. For great songwriting, and and you know, I defy anyone to say that those albums are you know are really anything less than um, le- less than great. Well, I, try, I, I can. The uh, problem is if I try and defy something, there will probably be about ten thousand people out there who will say, "Well, you know, actually we can and we can prove it." But um, but really, the pop songwriting is so strong. And particularly, why I love an album like The Nylon Curtain, which is funnily enough not an album that we're covering here today. But um, that was, uh, I, I thought, a great album. That was his, uh, his ode to suburbia, um, his ode to the baby boomers growing up and where things might have gone wrong. Um, lyrically, he was clever. There's a song in it called Laura that I think is one of the best songs the Beatles never recorded. Um, Liberty's playing like Ringo. Uh, Russell Javors, I think, is playing a lead guitar solo that, Sounds exactly like George Harrison. Um, the melody 
this pure Lennon. I'm not quite sure where McCartney fits into it, but it's, it really is a very Beatlesque song. And I think it was just like a, a B-side, uh, to, to, uh, one of the singles. I thought, how can you put a song this good as just a B-side? But it was a, it was a complex lyric. Um, and maybe not the sort of stuff that top 40 pop is made of, or certainly wasn't made of at the time. Um, so yeah, look, you know, he, he's, uh, for all the fact that, you know, he, I guess he was in the news for his music, but he also, I guess maybe he's turned a lot of people off of being in the news sort of, uh, going out with supermodels and, um, you know, maybe for some of the wrong reasons. I only found out, you know, a couple of years ago that, uh, he'd unceremoniously dumped, uh, Doug Stegmeyer, uh, I think maybe sometime in the late 80s. Um, and uh, he, he carried on for a few years, but he went and uh, Doug Stegmeier shot himself and in the studio um, while at a recording session. Uh, I have heard, uh, maybe you can confirm that the University of uh, Wikipedia, um, that he was suffering depression. That's what I've heard. Uh, and his longtime partner and, and uh, drumming stalwart, Liberty DeVito, they even sacked him and unceremoniously by letter or email or through lawyers or something like that, which you know, apparently upset Liberty very much, and maybe that's the reason why Liberty refused my invitation to join us for this show to discuss the album, but never mind, you know. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, he's been in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons as well. Maybe that's what's turned people off, but um, I think anyone who hasn't really listened to The Stranger and thinks that they can judge it based on his public persona, um, is really selling him short. Um, actually, before we uh, started recording, uh, I was showing to Michael um, something of a rarity. Um, before he, before Billy got his start recording for uh, CBS or Columbia Records, um, he, well, he, had, he had a few bands. One of them was called The Hassles, and when that split up, he stayed together with the drummer, a guy called John Small, and the two of them just formed a duo. So Billy Joel on Hammond organ um, with probably a heavily distorted Leslie speaker and John Small playing his best Carmine Appice, Keith Moon... Um, Ginger Baker. Ginger yeah. Baker thing on the drums. <laughs> it's just the two of them, but really they don't need anyone else. This is as heavy they, as it got. They can make a lot of noise with two people, but it's it's worth chasing it up. I'm not. I, I don't think we should kill the the mystery with the album cover. But <laughs> Google the album cover. It's the most fantastic photograph of an album cover you'll ever see the, in your life. The name of the duo was called Attila. So yeah, look up Attila. Uh, actually, what I might do is. Um, I might see if I can find the photo and I'll stick it up on uh, the Love That Album Facebook page it's and funny. just see what reactions we get. It's but, a beautiful uh, thing. Uh, the, the, two <laughs> of them, the two of them are dressed up in um, uh, their best Genghis Khan gear. Um, Billy's got long hair and a moustache and it looks like they're in, in, a, in a butcher's freezer that probably you know, one of them was good mates with a butcher who so said, if you, if you're here at 3 a.m. before we start work, then uh, you can take whatever photos it, in there. It really makes Spinal Tap look serious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's hysterical. Um, so not surprisingly, the album flopped. Um, but um, but look, the, the music on this album is certainly well worth a, a listen. Um, it, it's got such great tunes on it as uh, Wonder Woman, Amplifier, Fire, March of the Huns, 
and brain invasion. Tear this castle down. So, uh, you know, none of, it, none of them are quite like just the way you are. But, but um, <laughs> if, you can, if you can imagine that you know, Jimi Hendrix had played the Hammond organ and was playing in a duo, um, then you might sort of get an idea as to the sound. I'm not saying it's as good or, or anything like that, so don't jump down my throat. But it's, it's got that very full-on psychedelic wild feel. Um, so if nothing else, search out the album cover if I can't find it to put it on Facebook. Uh, so anyway, but we digress. Uh, um, yeah, anything that you wanted to say about, about Billy before we get to the album prop? I guess we, 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 when, uh, when you joined me for the 300th episode of Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide and we spoke about um, our favourite drummers, we, we spoke about Phil Collins and and I think I, I see Phil Collins and Billy Joel in a similar way. There, every album has a couple of great songs and a couple of cringy songs. But I think for me, both both artists are, are parallel. That the songs, the popular songs, just have been played at infinitum, and you don't really need to hear them anymore. But the Stranger, there's something about it that I can go back and listen to it. Although I think there was five singles from it. it it still has something special about it, and the arrangements are lovely. And it's, it's you know a lot of Joel's hits from from this time on. I really don't really mind if I don't hear them again. And mm. it's yeah, this album just has something special about it. And, and you mentioned uh, tune styles. I, th- I think I, I feel the same way about that one. But uh, yeah, I think it's just a a, a purple patch in the, in Billy Joel's career for. But I think most people think the same way. I guess a lot of the naysayers, uh, I, I read this maybe, I can't remember which one of the websites, but it said that you know a lot of the naysayers tend to sort of put him in the uh, bag where he's more uh, Broadway musical type songwriter rather than a rock songwriter. And you know, look, there's nothing wrong with that, but I disagree with that analysis. I think he'd like to rock out, but I think it's hard for anyone whose main instrument is going to be the piano rather than... Um, rather than a guitar, and you, you play the piano, and automatically you're, you're not you're not really rock enough unless you're um, you know, distorting the sound or you know running it through a flange or something like that. But um, if you're just going to sort of you know, use the piano as a melodic instrument, it's really hard to uh, get called um, a, a rock artist. I mean, I, I've heard the accusation made a little bit of Ben Folds, which I think is ex- extremely unfair. But even so, but and I'm sure you've seen Billy Joel play live. Billy Joel is a rock act. He really is a great rock act, mm. and 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 still, I I would go and see Billy Joel now um, because the the times I've seen him live, he's been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and look, you know, I mean, I, I guess I, I wonder whether there are the schools of thought, you know, Billy Joel versus Elton John. And I, Elton John has never done anything for me, but um, but I'd certainly, yeah, Billy Joel. I know there is. Uh, look, I, it's hard to put into words what it is about the songwriting that um, that draws me to that over over Elton John, and I've always been saying that you know, Ben Folds is nothing more than Billy Joel with a potty mouth. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but, you know, having said that, I, I love Ben Folds, and I'll plan to cover him, and I'll love that album sometime soon. Um, but yeah, no, definitely. He, as I said, what really holds him out is he, he has uh, these well thought out melodies. Um, I guess when I go back to the lyrics, maybe I didn't sort of think about them as much as I was, a, you know, when I was a kid. And now that I've sort of had to do this research for this album, maybe some of the lyrics, you know, sort of seem a little bit, um, oh, I don't know, 
just just don't hold up as well as as they used to. And yet, but on 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 um, on this album, uh, whilst you know not lyrically perfect, but there's still an awful lot to recommend it. And um, well, when we get to it, the the album's centerpiece, I think, is uh, uh, lyrically one of his best works. But we'll get to that fairly soon. Uh, so, um, all right. Look, I think that's probably covered enough just in the uh, background of it. Um, so I think what we'll do, have another quick break, and then we'll get into the album proper. You'll listen to Love That Album with Morris and Michael. We'll be back in a minute. American dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm coming to you live and in living color. Speak to you, the American people. A podcast called Silver and Gold Daddy. And you know that the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, knows how to bring home the gold, Daddy. And just like Henry Silver. Sticking Barbara Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling. Silver and gold will stick it to you. Stick it to your ears. Stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy. And all points in between, they'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's carcass hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold. We talk about movies and sh- Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. Welcome back from break. Morris here, Michael, right next to me, right in Adelaide. He's here in Melbourne. And we're talking about Billy Joel's album, The Stranger. Um, Okay, so we're going to go track by track, or as many tracks as you want to cover. Um, I've got notes for the place of it, Michael. I don't know about you. I have got a few one-liners. Okay. All right. Well, um, all right. So, we'll, yeah, we'll start off. The album opens up with um, the song Moving Out. Now, actually, here I've made reference before that you know, his detractors had gone and accused him of uh, being more of a Broadway show type songwriter. And I actually believe that somewhere, I don't know, the 1990s or the early 2000s, where there was a Broadway show put together. You know, I hate it when they do that, but they take the songbook of a pop performer and write a musical about it, you know, like Mamma Mia or, or uh, you know, innumerable ones, I'm sure, you know, with, the, with the Beatles songbook. Um, but I believe that they did one for the songs of Billy Joel and it was called Moving Out. I can only imagine what um, what that story was about. Um, so, look, you know, on, on, uh, on this first song, as he goes elsewhere on the album, and you know, to, a, to a, maybe a lesser extent over some of the, the following albums, he's interested in writing about tales of suburbia. Now, I know that you know, there are a lot of songwriters who think that that's you know, like the antithesis of what uh, good rock and roll is about. And, you know, that could be argued either way. And I know that a lot of them have written disparagingly uh, about you know, living in the suburbs, which... I guess often pisses me off because, you know, when uh, when an act goes and plays uh, a large stadium or, or in a pub or whatever, who are the people that come to see them? They're not other rock stars. They're people who, you know, pay the mortgage and go out to work during the day and, you know, you're sure they're looking for something different, but, you know, you're writing these songs dissing these people who basically pay for your cocaine habit. So, I don't know. 
But that never appears to be the case on this album. I'm not saying he looks upon uh, people you know, in the suburbs, you know, like, I don't think he's looking at the suburban experience as something with, you know, huge affection or, but, he, but he's never looking on people disparagingly. He's just writing from a very observational uh, viewpoint. Um, and, you know, I mean, like here in Australia, unlike, I guess, in a lot of American cities, most people live in the suburbs, you know, very few people live in you know, the city centres like in the, like in the States. Um, so, um, yeah, look. Okay, so the, op- the opening lines of the song, you know that I like quoting lyrics. That's my, <laughs> I that's my thing. Uh, but, but I love, I love the opening lines. Of the, he, he sings, Anthony works in the grocery store, saving his pennies for Sunday. Mama Leone left a note on the door. She said, Sonny, move out to the country. Working too hard can give you a heart attack. Now, I love that opening stanza because there's nothing obtuse about it. It's direct, but it also conveys this really clear picture and you've got the story straight away. You know, you, you understand, you, you know these characters. You can, you can see who they are in your mind. You can, you know, smell the environment. Uh, you know who Anthony is right off the, the bat. He's not someone who's got it easy in his life. He works hard. His mama's telling him, you know, not to send himself to an early grave. But, you know, the song isn't a serious or down type of song. You know, he, he sings, you know, it seems such a waste of time. If that's what it's all about, if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. Um, he's really, it, I guess maybe it's a bit of a hit on people's false ambitions. You know, they just want to rise till they hit the top. Maybe that's a suburban dream. Um, so, I don't know, there I have to go taking it back. It's, you know, he's painting this, these people with affection, but, you know, but he's saying, right, well, get your priorities right. Mind you, something, somewhat ironic considering that Billy wanted to probably be top of the rock world. <laughs> I'm just impressed that he managed to get a reference to the suburb Hackensack in the song, which <laughs> I think was probably, uh, some, some music teacher when he was in high school set some sort of, uh, some sort of project to uh, work weird names of suburbs into a song. So I think he passed that with flying colours. What can you make rhyme with hack and sack, Billy? <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it's a song that doesn't so much reject the Western dream of having a job and living out in the suburbs, but it does spit in the face of those who would say, don't follow your dreams, this, you know, this life is all there is. Whereas you know, loads of songwriters would reject suburbia, as I said before, and those people who, you know, work the night of five, Billy Joel doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but he, he likes his characters and he doesn't mock them for living in the birds. And that's why I guess I have a lot of respect for this song in particular. Um, anything you want to say about it musically? For, for me, this is a, an example, and there's a, there's a few examples on The Stranger and, and a few examples on turnstiles of Billy Joel's songwriting that, for me, paints a picture of suburban life in New York and that's that's what I really like about this tune in, in general it's to me as uh, to try and explain what I'm trying to say it's in a way Springsteen does it about New Jersey mm. and Billy Joel sort of does it not about glitzy New York but about you know the the New York that the everyday people live in and and it, it, this this may be a bad sort of um, comparison but it it takes me to you know the the famous scene in, in Saturday Night Fever in the opening of the movie when uh, Travolta comes out from work, buys a slice of pizza and walks up the street. That is, for me, that's moving out is a, a similar 
sort of picture for me that mm. it, someone you know it's for us on the other side of the world it it paints a, a picture of of what life in New York as a normal person was like and I, I really liked it mm. yeah that I, I still see him swinging that can of paint <laughs> yeah that's right yeah, that, that's I hadn't thought of that that's a really good analogy I like that one and and this song is is a, a song close to my heart because it uh, is responsible for uh, my wife and my honeymoon Strangely enough. Oh, please, go on. You can't, you can't give us a teaser. Go on, tell the whole story. Well, way back in um, oh, 1985, there was a, uh, a competition on, on radio that um, it was tied up with a, a board game, a rock music trivia board game that, and I can't actually remember the name of it, it's been packed away in a cupboard at, uh, at home since because no one would play it with me because I knew most answers. <laughs> and and I, I actually only ever had one mate that I played it with who, who knew all the 60s and 50s questions, and I failed dismally in that, and I knew all the, the 70s and 80s and not questions, and we just it was a stalemate, and like I said, no one else would play with us, but I digress. Um, um, Glenn A. Baker had something to do with the, the board game. He was tied up with it. Anyway, long story, but... Um, it was a competition to ring up and win this board game. So, um, the format of the competition was they'd, they'd ask you some trivia question about a tune and the, the song they, they chose, uh, was, uh, was moving out and they asked what was the, the subtitle of, uh, of the song. So it was, of course, Anthony's song. So I got through and won a copy of the board game and I don't actually recall knowing that at the end of however long they were in this contest for maybe a week or two weeks, um, that they uh, put everyone's name in a in a in a hat or whatever that uh, that had won a board game and uh, whoever's name got pulled out of the hat won a uh, a holiday to Bali. So there you go. That was uh, so I was planning to get married the next year and um, had a uh, a honeymoon in Bali thrust upon us, which was courtesy rather nice. Of moving out. That's right. Yeah, courtesy of Billy Joel. So uh, we ended up uh, strangely getting married in. Um, in June, in the middle of winter, only because we could uh, enjoy the weather in Bali for our honeymoon. But we, uh, we, and I guess the funny thing about that was back in 1986, we ended up on an island called Lembongan. And if you've ever been to uh, to Bali in recent years, this island is uh, built up, five star resorts, you name it, it's got it. Uh, back then, it had no electricity, mm. <laughs> no vehicles. And yeah, it was uh, it was just sort of a surfy island which you hung out on. So uh, it was uh, fairly entertaining. We uh, we laugh about it now. Let me put it that way. So there you go. <laughs> um, okay, so track two of the album is the title track, "The Stranger," and it's one of the few songs I can think of that has whistling in it, and it actually works. Indeed. Well, there, well, there's a great story that Phil Ramone. And Billy Joel were talking about the melody of the intro of this song, and and Billy Joel was struggling to to work out what instrument to actually play that on. And Phil, and I, I think he, the story is that he he whistled it to Phil Ramone, and Phil Ramone just said, "Leave it, do it like that." And mm. I agree, it is the most beautiful little piece of music. It certainly paints paints the mood there, you know, with that sort of uh, dark and mysterious piano part that he plays. It. It makes it sound like um, you can almost imagine a guy in a trench coat hiding. Oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. The Maltese Falcon we could use that as the opening. Uh, they could. <laughs> they could. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an interesting song thematically. Um, 
uh, after the yeah, after that intro, the song proper starts, and it's about uh, that part of our personality we keep hidden from everyone else. Uh, we only take them out and show ourselves when everyone is gone. They're the faces of the stranger, but we'd love to try them on. Well, in best Paul Simon tradition, uh, Billy Joel presents the song as being about one thing in the verses and then reveals its true nature in the bridge, similar to the masks you know, we wear described in the song. In, in the, um, uh, in, in the uh, bridge, he sings, Don't be afraid to try again. Everyone goes south every now and then. This is... So this is a different character to the one singing the verses. Uh, the, uh, the stranger we reveal is no more than a reaction to life not going as well as we'd like, so we turn nasty. The second character offers uh, a shoulder and some sympathy. I guess it's a little bit, reminds me a little bit of um, uh, the Beatles' uh, We Can Work It Out, you know, only the other way around in the verses, you know. McCartney singing, oh, look, if we do things like this, you know, we can make it all work out. And Lennon singing in, uh, in the bridge, you know, life is very short and um, you know, hurry up because really, you know, life is shit. Uh, you know, get on with it. Um, but, you know, this is the opposite, you know, so the, 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 the verses you have sounds like the guy in therapy um, saying, you know, uh, really, you know, we, we have this, we have these nasty sides to ourselves and this is what we have lurking underneath underneath this facade, but um, you know the the shrink, the Doctor Melfi, if you will, um, is saying, you know, look, you know, don't get so disconcerted. Everything will work out. Or maybe it is just the angel and the devil on, on uh, his shoulder. So I mean, look, this really begs the question as to whether the stranger is really the nasty side we reveal on, you know, life's disappointments, or whether this is our own true self. It's, it's, I think it's very clever writing. Um, yeah, sorry, you're going to say yeah, I, 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 lo- I love this song lyrically, and it still is one of my favourite Billy Joel tunes lyrically. But it's, I, I, I find this a bit strange sitting in the album. Most of the album is is very, you know, in the first person, and 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 for me, it's you know, talks about Billy Joel's experiences, and I wonder where this one comes from. It's sort of in, not maybe in the third person more than anything else, but. Yeah, I wonder, I've always wondered, sort of, you know, what, what was the motivation behind the actual lyrics of the tune? Well, look, I can't say for sure, and I haven't read that this is definitely the case, but I know he'd gone through some very dark times a few years before, and I believe he even drank some uh, furniture polish uh, to try and commit suicide. So he, he... After he made the Attila album. <laughs> uh, well, actually, funnily enough, um, it, I think it was maybe not quite after that, but after his... Um, his Cold Spring Harper album, which didn't see the light of day for many years because it had been mastered at the wrong speed or something like that. So you shouldn't be laughing about something like that. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it, you know that's he's singing about his dark side, and then in the verses, you know, everyone goes south every now and then, but but you know, really look up, things can be good, and it's it's not it's not mindlessly rah 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 you know, really it'll all work out fine in a mindless sort of way I think it's very well thought out and it's acknowledging that we have you know we have these dark sides and, you know not it's not saying no, that's bullshit it's saying look, I acknowledge we have it but but you know really this isn't you this is just a phase you're going through um, so it's, it's essentially trying to remain positive but with a nice noirish melody and um, 
the, the guitar work is courtesy of a guy called uh, Steve Khan. Um, and um, yeah, so he plays he plays the melody in between the verses uh, really nicely. So there's some good guitar work there. Uh, and Liberty DeVito is playing you know, straight 4-4, but with a slight funk feel. And then uh, does this great overdub thing with, with a triangle in a um, in, uh, you know, happy, chappy sort of bridges. I don't know if you know that. Mm. You know, the triangle's cool. There's a lot of triangle hidden in this LP. Mm. And, and this, the, the only real travesty, I think, with this album is this song should open the album. It's just wrong that it doesn't. And it, it makes no sense to me at all. I guess in these days where you shuffle your iPod, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> in, the, in the context of an LP back in those days, I, I cannot fathom why they did not start the album with this song. You know what? I'm going to rearrange things on the iPod and put that one first and see if the album plays. That sounds completely different. That's, like I said, the, that's piano, the piano intro is just the most beautiful thing and it just sets the tone. And yeah, It, it certainly doesn't make sense, in, especially in light of the fact that he reprises that um, noirish intro at the very end of the yeah, album and yeah. it would have made good bookings. So. Yeah, that's right. You're completely right. And I'll, you know, it's such a beautiful piece. The piano intro is is still something I could... I wish that I, I can just see a piano-based drum jazz trio doing this and I wish someone would do it and if anyone has heard one, uh, send, send Morris an email and a link to it because I, I think it would make a lovely you know, 10-minute piece. You could go in so many directions with it and it certainly... I bought a piano many years ago from my son and uh, it was one of the first things I tinkered trying to learn <laughs> and uh, had hours of fun doing it. Mm. So, yeah... <laughs> All right, so we then go, the next song on the album is the one that basically sort of uh, broke him out to become a superstar, uh, you know, the one that made millions of people go out and buy The Stranger. I'm talking about Just The Way You Are. Now, a little story which I mentioned to you on our uh, top ten drummers episode of Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, but um, I think it sort of made Bell well bear repeating here, um, which was I think back in the early 90s I went to see Liberty DeVito do a drum clinic here in Melbourne uh, I think he was on tour with Billy Joel during the Stormfront tour, I didn't go to that tour because as I said I hated the album but uh, Liberty DeVito, the chance to see him uh, in a lecture context um, was absolutely something I couldn't knock back so went went to see him and he was talking away and it was really fascinating. And at one point he said, okay, I want to get a volunteer out of the audience. And you know, I, I said to my hand, go up, put your hand up, put your hand up. And everyone else was probably doing the same thing, but in the end only one guy had the guts to put his hand up. And he came up the front and he said, right, I've got the backing tape of just the way you are without my drum part. I want, I want to put it on and I want you to play along to it and see what you come up with. And... This guy went and played his thing. He said, right, you know, I don't want you to try to imitate me. Just see what you can come up with. And he said, right, well, what you're doing, you're doing something that's just maybe a little bit robotic. You're not... Go for the feel of the song. Listen to the song. Think as a songwriter. Don't just sort of come up with the first 4-4 thing you can do. And um, he came up, he gave him some tips. And lo and behold, five minutes later, this guy was coming up with something really beautiful. Now, it would have been enough just to have a private... Well, a, 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 a public, one-on-one -on -one drum lesson with Liberty DeVito. 
But if that wasn't enough, he said, well, thank you for coming up here. And here uh, is a um, here's a free Sabian ride symbol and crash symbol for your personal <laughs> kit. And I just hated myself. You know, but um, I did get to speak to Liberty afterwards and get him to sign my album with a stranger. So you know, it wasn't all bad. Um, so, yeah, that's my little story about just the way you are. Uh, uh, look, this is a song that it, it's in some ways it's hard to be objective about nowadays because it's been... You know, mocked in the Blues Brothers and played at countless weddings and elevators and probably cruise ships around the world for you know the last 35 years or so. Um, and this can probably be seen as the height of popular music. Um, it was supposed to have been written for Billy Joel's then wife Elizabeth. Um, and I don't know, I, I sort of have a couple of problems with that. Just thinking about that, um, if he was sincere about you know saying singing in the lyric that this is how he felt about her. How did it all turn to shit later on? Well, she obviously didn't feel the same about him. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm guessing that, uh, if, for those of you who've heard the um, uh, the Nolan Curtin album that I mentioned before, there's a song in it called Surprises. Uh, I reckon that that's also dedicated to Elizabeth, but it's no, I love you just the way you are. This is, you know, <laughs> go on, you take this, I'll take that. And, uh, we can't stand each other anymore. Um, but I think that there's a second problem that I have. I mean, that's you know, that, that's all down the road. You can't judge by what's going to happen down the road how he felt there. But I still feel like listening to the lyrics of this song, which we're all thinking, oh, yeah, it's a beautiful love song. But in some ways, he has very low expectations of Elizabeth. He, you know, he's singing, I don't want clever conversation. I never want to work that hard. I just want someone I can talk to. Um, really, I, I guess that's not really high praise of of his wife, or certainly saying, "Look, you know, just be with me, you know, hang around, let's talk." At the end of the day, I come back from a tour, you know. Hey, how's life? How things been with you? Done anything interesting? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, yeah, me too. Um, yeah, I don't know, not very complimentary. Um, and he, he's. He, Seems to be you're very steadfast. He doesn't want some. He's not someone who's up for change. I need to know that you will always be the same old someone that I knew, you know, day after day, night after night. No change, no challenge, no great conversation. No wonder this marriage didn't last. Maybe, maybe it's a precursor to the prenup because his bank account <laughs> would have been going through the roof at about this time. Did he have a? Did he have I a don't prenup know. with <laughs> Christy Brinkley? <laughs> Here we are talking about, you know, the, the sort of thing that made people turn off him rather than <laughs> the music, shit. Um, but, look, you know what, it's, this is, in, in a way, I feel a little bit like this, about like I feel about Stairway to Heaven. It's a song which, you know, by reputation you think, oh God, if I never hear that again, that'll be fine. And yet, obviously, to listen, I had to listen to this album a few times before, you know, working out to what, how we're going to discuss, uh, the album, and really, you know, forget the Muzak version that you've heard in the elevator. When you listen to what Billy's band does with this, it really is quite lovely. Um, and yeah, okay, so it's laid back soft rock, but um, it's not Muzak in his hands. They really have uh, a good feel. Everyone's doing their bit. Um, you know, Richie Kanata, you know, isn't. Kenny G, you know, he's playing tastefully. Maybe, you know, it's this sort of thing that gave the saxophone in the 70s a bad reputation, but he's just on the right side of tasteful, I think. Um, 
know. Actually, one other thing that I did in my research, I found it's not credited on the album, but the keyboard player on this is none other than Richard T, who was Paul Simon's keyboard player. And you spoke a lot about him in the uh, One Trick Pony episode of Love It Up uh, a few episodes back. Uh, but you know, in hindsight, just reading about this, I mean, it's, it's that keyboard sound that is fully on of Richard T. Yeah, that, that keyboard. Absolutely. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely agree with the Paul Simon. If if you if you didn't know that, to me, it it could be on Still Crazy or something. It's, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, the, the because the song was flogged to death, and. For me, song, you know, if I never hear Uptown Girl again or never hear Still Rock and Roll to me again, that's fine. <laughs> and, I, and I, but this one, there's something about it. It's, like I think you said, Morris, it's, it's so beautifully played. And Liberty Vito indeed is, you know, he's a very heavy hitting drummer. Mm. But when he needs to turn it back, you know, this is a great example of how beautiful his softer side of playing is. And again, there's a triangle happening in this song. Yes. I love those little subtleties. It's, um, and the alto sax solo is, yeah, like, uh, you know, I think it just makes it. It's, yeah, I, I know I was pleasantly surprised how much I enjoyed hearing the song again. The, the, the electric piano in it is just out of this world. And I just, you know, it just swirls and takes your ears away somewhere else and or, you know to sit down with a pair of headphones and and enjoy that is uh, is one of the small pleasures in his life indeed and yeah it's it still stands up as a great song which is uh, you know for me not a common thing with something i've heard so many times mm-hmm. um all right so we'll next move on to the song that is real i guess the centerpiece of the album and i know it was a a live favourite, deservedly so. Uh, I'm talking about scenes from an Italian restaurant. Now, you know, this is what I really love about you know a few of the songs on this album is they tell a story, and I'm I'm a sucker for uh, a song with a great story, and this really is a great tale. You can almost sort of see a film running in your head while this song is playing. Um, you know, it's effectively it's a song in three parts. Uh, the first the first section. Um, we hear you know, it's not from a first-person perspective. Two ex-lovers, they meet at their old haunt. They're happy to be in each other's company again. It's played in a really slow tempo. Moves on to the second section of the song. Um, once again, sung in first person, you know, from the same person's perspective as sung the first part, where he's starting to uh, recount all the wild, exciting days of uh, their youth. You know, this this um, uh, this couple. Uh, after saying how happy they are, you know, there's the obligatory thing, oh yeah, I'm married again and, you know, I've got a good job and all that, but you don't necessarily believe he's all that happy. Um, and then it gets into the third person account of what really happened in the relationship between these two people and, you know, the relationship turned to shit. Uh, finances, expectations of what they needed out of the marriage were not aligned with reality. Um, and then, you know, it, it finishes off. The coda is a repeat uh, of um, the opening section of the song. Uh, it, it's an eight-minute song, but, you know, it, I, I wouldn't remove a second of it. Um, it it's such a fascinating tale. Uh, it's musically rich. Um, 
Well, I, I wouldn't take anything about it. Um, well, I've got a lot to say about it, but I, I don't want to hold this. So, your thoughts? Um, to me, to me, Morris, this is also you know a similar one to Moving Out, but it's it paints a picture for me of of Billy Joel's life in in New York and. Or you know, an Italian family in New York, and I've, you know, I've got a bit of Italian background, and I can sort of relate to it. But it's also, also for me, you know, there's a lot of Springsteenicality in this song. It, you know, you, you, lyrically it goes forever, but it's it's a fascinating story, as you said, and I, I love the way it's sort of three songs joined into one. Yes, um, and different movements, and like you say, you know, it would make a great movie. Yeah, mm. I, I agree with everything. It's um, and it's a yeah it was also as you say a, a great live tune and there's so so many wonderful dynamics musically in the song it's um, you know the the bridge between the second and third sort of section of the song is just fantastic and I you know that's what I love about this period of Billy Joel and the band they just there seems to be that musicality and the way they arrange things I really like and I you know I, I guess Billy Joel later on became for me for my years anyway the but lost that dynamic a little bit and it all, it all sounded a bit like it was all um you know done by phil Spector. there was it was sort of all one level but you know that's what i really love about this tune apart from the lyrics is is the musical dynamics of it well it's interesting you, you made mention of the um you made a springsteen connection and certainly I, I think you know, Billy was probably looking over his shoulder to see what Springsteen was doing at the time. And when it comes to the sax solo, Richard Canada's sax solo, in the middle of that third section, he probably said to it, play like that guy Clarence <laughs> Clemens. It sounds so much like Clemens is yeah, on here. Um, so, look, you know, a little bit more detail. I've already gone, done a basic description of the song, but you know, the first section, once again, is setting the mood. In, um, it, it almost sounds like you know we're watching Lady in the Tramp. Um, in, in that best style, there's this lovely piano accordion played by a guy called Dominic Cortese. I don't know what else he's done, but um, it just really suits the mood. And you get the feeling that there's some, still some strong affection between this estranged couple. Um, in the next section, where the guy in the couple, he sings... Uh, this is in the second section, he sings, Things are okay with me these days. I've got a good job, got a good office, got a new wife, got a new life, and the family's fine. You know, the job and the new wife are almost dismissed out of hand. Then when he sings, We lost touch long ago, you lost light, I did not know you could ever look so nice after so much time. You know for sure he's still hooked on his ex. Uh, this is not merely a civilised get-together after the dust is settled from a marriage breakup just to sort of say, Oh, I wonder what you're up to. He's... He's still burning a flame for her there. Um, but the bulk of the song takes place in the third section. We get their names because it's told in the third person. So uh, this couple, Brenda and Eddie, they were teenage sweethearts who loved life and they loved each other. They made the big step towards marriage despite being told by their friends, uh, maybe you want to think about that. Um, but, you know, they believe love will be enough and, they'll, and that will sustain them. Um, you know, they had each other, they had stuff like you know, water beds and the like, but expenses came in at a higher rate than their income and that was the divisor. They split and they realised that you can stay friends but you can't go back to the way things were uh, before that step. You know, he sings the king and the queen went back to the green, but 
you can never go back there again. I love the frantic nature of that third part. He really builds it up. He starts it slow, gets this mid, uh, mid-tempo mid thing, and Richard Canada's playing in that second section. He's playing the clarinet. Um, it's just, just this beautiful feel. And then that last bit, it's, it's frantic. It's almost like... It's reflecting the fact that Brenda and Eddie's life just got rushed and became out of control, so the music is frantic and out of control. And that was the great part of the song live, too, mm. wasn't it? That's why it worked so well live. Definitely. If it had gone and stayed in the one tempo, even with a even with an arresting story, if it remained slow to mid-tempo for the whole song, I don't think it would ever have worked, and it might not have been played on tour beyond the Stranger mm. yeah. tour, but it's, you know, I think he played it for the rest of his life days, you know, purely because it was just so well crafted. I imagine he spent months. This is not a song that you would have just said, oh yeah, it came to me, like really, really quick. I imagine he, every word was was written and rewritten and pulled out and new words inserted and every part about the arrangement. Because it's not just a melody, this is the arrangement. This is a full arrangement. I I do recall reading that I think when you know a review or a, an interview when it came out back in the day that the, the last section of the song was actually written as a separate song, okay. and the rest was, was sort of added to it. Maybe someone can write in and tell us if that was correct or not, but it's my recollection indeed. Works for me. Yeah. So I wonder if John Bon Jovi was listening to this when he wrote "Living on a Prayer." Pretty well, much, pretty much similar uh, variation on a theme. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess uh, doing it tough is a. Uh, uh, a, a common theme in pop songs, but uh, truly, I think a you few know, have done it as eloquently as uh, Billy Joel does here. And I like the fact that he was allowed to have that time to stretch out. He didn't sort of want to. He was telling a story. That's what makes it work, rather than just a first person "I love you," but where did it all go bad type thing. You know, the, the road of pop music is littered with those. And, you know, really, we don't even need another song like that again. But because in eight minutes he tells a whole story, both from you know, the, the first person perspective but then also going right well let's go back in time and we'll tell you what really happened um, it's, it's just a great technique uh, and I just imagine you know, bringing back Paul Simon uh, who uh, I've mentioned in previous podcasts is very methodical in his songwriting approach and takes months and then sits down nine to five like a like a, like a desk job and I imagine that's what Billy Joel did at least for this song it doesn't matter whatever else he did but this song I I won't be convinced to do anything less than uh, craft this word by word. And it's it's a highlight of his career, not just of this album. All right, so that ends off side one of uh, the vinyl copy of uh, the album. Um, halfway through on the CD, I guess, but I do have the album here in front of me, uh, which I'm using for inspiration because it's got Liberty DeVito's uh, signature. Yes. I, I don't want to hammer that home too much, but... <laughs> oh dear, how boring I am. Anyway, uh, so side two of the album. This is uh, this is a song I always liked, but I never really knew what it meant. And then I read a fascinating story. I mean, look, I don't want to admit this too much, but you know, there were one or two songs where I did go to Wikipedia. Most of this is just my own account, my own thoughts about you know, each song on the album. It's really the way I tend to work for these podcasts, but. I didn't know. He, he, he's, he says, on the one hand, he's singing this song about uh, don't waste your opportunities in life. Um, and then he sings, Vienna waits for you. And I'm like, huh? Well, 
Why, why Vienna? What's the point? And there was uh, an interesting thing that I saw on the web where uh, I think originally appeared in the New York Times. Billy Joel had written this article describing uh, this song as actually one of his two favorite compositions that he, you know, that he's ever written. Uh, and he said that this song was a metaphor for the crossroads of the rest of one's life. Here, here what he had to say. He describes how Vienna was in Europe was a literal crossroad, you know, between the Eastern Bloc, the Warsaw Pact and the NATO nations, and also earlier on between the Ottoman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and the, these cultures would co-mingle in Vienna. Um, you know, obviously this is common fodder for pop songs. Um, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes on to tell the story about how like, his, his father had left his mother uh, early on in his life. But uh, Billy Joel, as a young adult, had tracked his father down after not having seen him between the ages of 8 and 24. Um, and so he, he, he tracked him down to Vienna. So Billy Joel you know, saw... Um, he was out with his father after he tracked him down, hanging out with him, and he saw this 90-year-old woman sweeping the street. And, you know, he, Joel said, why? Why is this old woman you know, still working at this time in her life? You know, why is she doing that? And Joel's father explained that older people in Vienna had taken on jobs to feel useful rather than go on to nursing homes. The Viennese still feel part of the community. So Joel thought that when he gets to old age, he hopes to have you know, his use in the world where his Vienna waits for him. He saw that, you know, that he saw that the, the city of Vienna as the crossroads to the rest of his life. And you know, here he is singing in this song, uh, you know, slow down, you crazy child. Uh, you're so ambitious for a juvenile. You know, you're, you're not going to achieve everything that you want to in your youth. You know, do what you can, enjoy it. But Vienna waits for you, the crossroads to all the other things that you can do in your life. You don't have to hurry about it. You know, don't think that if you haven't done everything in life by the time you're age 30 that your life's over. Really, this is from you know, a certain age onwards, that's your crossroads. That's, this is your Vienna. And I, I thought it was an interesting analogy. I mean, I wouldn't have discovered without reading story. it up on, on, uh, on the web, but it's, um, yeah, it's a nice song. Yeah, that's an, that's a really great story. And but that highlights, you know, I think we've, we sort of touched on this a lot with this album, is Billy Joel's songwriting on this album in the main is, you know, very deep. There's a, there's a lot of work and a lot of thought gone into it. And for me, whether, and I think that in general, you know, in, in, in future, especially the, the songs that, that got hammered to death, that didn't come across. Whether it was the, whether that was the case or not, it just it sort of lost that for me. It lost that depth of songwriting, and mm. and you know this is a classic example of that. And I'm, you know, I guess musically this song, the accordion sort of carries over from scenes from an Italian restaurant. And mm. you know, when I think back to to 1970s, the accordion was the the absolute most uncool instrument ever it's turned around and now it is very cool the, the advent of world music and and, and even zydeco and, and some of that stuff oh, yeah. the accordion is a very cool instrument and i i love it but but way back then it was not cool and to put an accordion on a song 
or you know, just as much as it is. It was, uh, and I, you know, it works so well, but it it also gives it a, especially this tune gives it a a European feel that we don't make. You know, really, really stuck out to me when I went back to listen to it again. That the accordion is such a, an integral part of the music of of Europe, of France and mm, Germany and, mm. and Austria and Italy and it's you really it really made me think, yeah, it's 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 there all the time but we we tend to not notice it maybe. So I found that really interesting. Mm. And it's it's it wasn't my you know, certainly maybe my least favourite tune on the album, but okay. but going back to listen to it again my ears really picked up, and I, I guess I heard it with different ears this time, and uh, yeah, really sort of enjoyed it more than I ever had. Mm. Okay, so uh, next track is um, uh, "Only the Good Die Young," and uh, this is this is a fun song. Um, you know, sung from the perspective of a guy from you know the wrong side of the tracks, trying to persuade a girl to stop living the restrictive life and basically to open her legs for him. Uh, uh, the, you know, it, it's Joel's clever lyric stops this from being what could be just another leering come on baby get into me type song not that there's anything wrong with that because rock and roll is littered with songs I mean rock and roll is about sex but but uh, you know, there's a little bit cleverer than that so you know, he's singing come on Virginia don't let me wait you Catholic girls start much too late but sooner or later it comes down to fate I might as well be the one now right off the bat you know, his character is making it known what he wants there's no I'll, really, I'll love you and hold your hand until the end of time before revealing what he really wants. He's saying straight off the bat, you know, come on, let's let's shag. Um, you know, um, you're you're going to have to lose your chariot, son. Hey, so it, it might as well be you know, with me. Um, he proceeds to tell her that all her religious upbringing is is Codswold. And he'd rather live with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners are much more fun than only the good die young. Um, it's, it's really good breezy acoustic pop here. Um, the, the acoustic guitar sort of uh, is, is more pronounced on this song than it is, I think, anywhere else on the album. Yeah. I, I love the, the way the acoustic guitar and the, the, the organ work in this song is just a highlight for me. I love that. And it's... It's not, again, it's an unusual match, but it works really well. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think this was a big single as well and did very well. And to me, it's, um, the first thing I thought is, because uh, I'm a I'm a big Warren Zevon fan, love everything he's ever done. And to me, this is, you know, it could be a Warren Zevon song. It's got that sort of tongue-in-cheek sense of humour about it. And, and Billy Joel does that at times. It's It's a... It's a thing that pops up, you know, recurringly, but not not often. Maybe there's one tune on every album that it will pop up, yeah. and I find that really interesting. And and that's that's I guess why, you know, there's there's maybe some so much division in in what people like and don't like about Billy Joel because when you think about it, he does, you know, he does a lot of schmaltzy's maybe not the right word, but a lot of tunes that are perceived as that. A lot of tunes that you know we've spoken about on this show that, like scenes from Italian Restaurant, that it, that I think are very interesting lyrically and you know great songwriting craftsman-like songs. But this song is again a, a different tack. It's a, a tongue-in-cheek, just a bit of fun, and and that's 
know, that, well, I guess when I think about it, that's that's an interesting thing about Billy Joel is he he has these different hats he can uh, he can put on, and maybe that's where the stranger comes from. That it that the the actual tune, the stranger, refers to how Billy Joel has you know, different hats he can put on, and, and I, I think that really this song is a, an example of that for me. Mm. All right, uh, so the next song, uh, going from something fun to something a little bit more serious, and um, I guess like Just The Way You Are, where I had some problems with that, um, I guess She's Always A Woman is maybe you know, it, like that, well, maybe it's not like that, but it's certainly not a conventional love song. Um, you know, I, I guess a lot of conventional love songs and the, the description of the partner always paints that partner as really, really perfect um, or, you know, at least that, you know, wonderful at any rate. Um, but basically, you know, here's a song where he's singing in the verses, you know, look, you, know, you might say that my woman's horrible and she's nasty and she can be a bitch and nasty piece of work and you actually, you know, quite often she actually is, but she's all right by me. Um, so look, presumably this is another song for his wife Elizabeth and you know, allegedly she, you know, she was his manager and allegedly she was in a quite tough who uh, really looked after his, his business affairs. Um, so you know, it, it's all too easy to you know, maybe you know, write or sing a song and praising the virtues of one partner and, and, and being dismissive of their fault. But you know, he, he really doesn't shy away from that. He sings, you know, she can kill with a smile, she can wound with her eyes, she can ruin your faith with her casual lies. She and you know, she's frequently kind, she's suddenly cruel. She'll do as she pleases, she's nobody's fool. So, you know, really, I mean, up until you get to the last line of, of a verse, you don't you think, oh wow, this is a fairly disparaging song and then he sings, But she's always a woman to me. And this song's often been um, accused of being uh, fairly misogynist. I mean, I don't know, where do, you, do you reckon it is? Or? I don't know. It's just one of those songs for me. It, it was the precursor to a lot of the schmaltzy Billy Joel stuff to come. Mm. And I don't, I don't really, you know, I, I mentioned it before that Just The Way You Are doesn't do that for me, but this one does. Okay. And I'm not really sure why. Um, it's, and I, I don't dislike it particularly, but it's, yeah, it's just a bit ho-hum for me. It's, and, and I, I guess it sort of reminds me, you know, it's it's a bit of just a, a pop tack on something like, um, you know, Dylan's tune. Um, uh, the, the name of the tune is Lo- um, Lost to Me and It'll Come to Me. Um, what's the one that's always a woman? She's always a woman. Something like that. I can't think of it. Never mind. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I want to ask you. Yeah, no, okay. But music, musically, uh, I, again, as, as the previous tune, the, the acoustic guitar and the organ were were really working together in the background. The piano and the acoustic guitar in this song, they're hidden down in the mix, but they're lovely. The, the way you don't hear an acoustic guitar worked and arranged like this album, and this song is a, another example on how well that works. and. You've really got to listen behind the song to sort of hear it, but it's really lovely how they've done it. I think probably at this point, because one thing that we've neglected to mention about the album is uh, Phil Ramone's production. Um, and I, I guess it's it's a good thing that this album was recorded in the, you know, well, sort of mid, mid-ish 70s rather than you know, 15, 20 years later. I mean, you know, part of what makes some of the latest stuff 
besides you know poor songwriting, but it's so horribly overproduced. And um, you know, even despite the fact that this was a big, big, big album, it doesn't sound like it doesn't have the the, the histrionics or the big yeah, overwrought. Yeah. You mentioned Phil Spector before you know, overwrought Phil Spectorish production. I mean, like even Turnstiles, which is an album that I love. Production-wise, doesn't really always do it for me, but this sounds almost like a, an intimate album in, in some parts. And even on songs like um, "Since from an Italian Restaurant," which we spoke about before, um, it, it, that's that's a big song in every sense of the word, and yet it it it's tastefully produced. It could have so easily gone wrong. And what you were just saying here now about "She's Always a Woman." Um, it's the, the the mix in a Phil Ramone's work on this is just absolutely beautiful. And I I think a good measure of the song uh, of the album's success is really due to him. Mm. Oh, and the instrumentation is interesting, and it's the arrangements are interesting. Even the rocky songs, there there is no electric guitar solo on this album. No. Which, um, you know, all the all the solos are are um, mostly you know mostly saxophone or or accordion or or organ, and that's you know, in in the context of of what was coming out in nineteen seventy seven, there wasn't a lot. You know, Paul Simon was doing it, but there wasn't. You know, the the mainstream rock and roll stuff wasn't. You know, this was a very different album. Mm. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't. It's almost like he didn't know that there was this revolution taking place in uh, you know with um, you know, bands like Television and um, you know the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and. Uh, the New York Dolls, you know, had been around for you know, a little while, and, um, and he, he sort of reverted to a very traditional style of song playing. He's still got his heart in uh, older rock and roll and older melody, uh, but you know, as it was evidence in you know, Vienna, he liked that European sound as well, and you know, bringing you know traditional sounds and really sort of melded it into a, just you know, an overall lovely album. Mm. Um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, yeah, she's always a woman. You know, is it about someone who's flighty, selfish, narcissistic? Let us know your thoughts if you have any uh, listeners out there. Um, all right, so two more songs on the album, uh, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, the, the second last song on the album is I think we'll get it right the first time. Now, such is the strength of this album that this is almost a throwaway song, and yet how good this album is, at least how good I think this album is. But even this throwaway song, to me, is absolutely wonderful. Um, and just sort of coming back to that story that I mentioned before about going to see Liberty DeVito do the drum clinic. Um, after uh, after the clinic, he was signing albums and you know, chatting to people. And I mentioned to him that I really loved the drum parts on this song, more so than anything I'd ever heard him do. He said, oh, man, you should have put up your hands. I would have got you out the front and would have had you <laughs> playing them for the audience to the backing tape. I got the backing tape for that. And, you know, I really wanted to hit my head on a brick wall about that one too. Um, but the thing that's really great, uh, I'm, I'm putting the drummer's hat on. Uh, he comes up with, through the song, four great, very inventive drum patterns uh, on this song. And yet it doesn't sound cl- uh, cluttered or like he can't make up his mind what he wants to do. Everything works with that part of the song. And it's like what we discussed in Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide 
um, about us being fans of drummers who serve the song rather than just trying to show off how great they are. And what he does is technically fantastic, but it works so well with the song. So, you know, the, 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 during the verses, he's playing this drum pattern that almost sounds like it's got a bit of a funk feel, but you know, a little bit different, but it's a little bit of a funk, laid-back funk feel. And then the um, in the uh, the chorus, he's got two different drum parts, uh, and both of the very Latin-sounding feel, almost playing, I think, the uh, the snare drum on on the, the back beats and a lot of great hi-hat work, um, but two different feels for two different parts of the chorus. And then there's a middle eight, and he's doing something different yet again there, but it never sounds cluttered and it never sounds unimaginative. It's just really fantastic. Um, lyrically, probably, for me, the weakest song on the album, you know, guy meets girl, doesn't know how to tell her that he that he cares for her, but he's got to make a good first impression. And really surprising considering how much thought's gone into the rest of the album. It almost sounds like he's just sort of, he had he had to fill in some space and just, he, these are lyrics which he thought up in, in three minutes, I'm sure. But um, but musically, just, yeah, I, I love how creative and imaginative it is. You know, we we certainly don't collude on on uh, on writing your notes for these, but you know, the for me again, this song, the same as you, mate, is you know, this is Liberty DeVito's shining moment. I don't love the song, but listening to what Liberty is playing is magic stuff, mm. and and really, and and as, as we spoke about in just the way you are, what Liberty DeVito can play to suit the song is just magic. He. You know, the, listen to the two different styles on the, on on this song and just the way you are, and they are chalk and cheese, but they they serve the song so beautifully. And uh, his playing in this is is magical. The, yeah, to me, the last two songs on the album are a little bit fillerish. The this one, yeah, I agree, doesn't go anywhere really lyrically. And if it wasn't for the you know the rhythm, and and even that seems a little bit out of context. Um, and yeah, like the flute solo is is okay, uh, but I, you know, I, the first thing I thought when I went back and listened to this song, I, you know, thank God Peter Allen didn't steal this because it just, <laughs> I know that's. Really, oh, I'm not going to listen to this song the same way. I know that's really cruel, and, and no oh. offence to uh, to Peter Allen, may he rest in peace. But yeah, that's the first thing I thought. I thank goodness that he didn't uh, destroy this. So mm. I, hope, I hope I haven't ruined it for anybody. <laughs> Well, you've ruined it for me. Thanks a lot, pal. That's no, my pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we'll go to the um, the final song on the album, uh, Everybody Has a Dream. Now, really, because it, it's it's only because once I start writing notes for this show that I start to really think about the lyrics of uh, some of these songs. Um and this is a song which I just sort of, you know, taken for granted for many years. I thought, wow, what a, you know, what a great gospel feel. And once again, Richard T, the great Richard T, is playing uh, Hammond um, on this, uh, and just sounds really beautiful. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a gospel choir, um, and there's, you know, the, uh, the organ, and you know, the band is playing really tastefully. It's a, you know, it's a great tune, and. The lyric is shit. Um, well, yeah. Okay, so you, from the title, you think everybody has a dream. You think there's going to be some inspirational Martin Luther King 
type story. Everyone's <laughs> got a dream that they've got to follow. Clichéd, <laughs> but, you know, inspirational nevertheless. And I'm coming back to the suburbia sort of thing. Uh, and this is, you know, he's saying, well, what is my dream? My dream is to sit at home with you every night and um, and uh, just have a nice relax. Um, and now I'm sort of going reverse about from, you know, saying at the beginning of the album, yay, Billy, for not knocking the suburbs. But really, he's, he's very blanding it out uh, lyrically here. You know, everybody has a dream. This great title he could have done something with. And this is my dream, just to be at home and to be all alone with you. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Bill. Uh, well, at least at least the music's good. <laughs> yeah, and I, like I said, the last two tunes just seem to be a bit tacked on for me. And and again, this one promised so much but delivered so little. The the, the gospel choir is fantastic, and yep. there's some great names in the choir: Phoebe Snow, that you who you know, and and um, and other. You know, it's really well done, and the production. But again, the production is a bit out of step with the rest of the album. The, the, the rest of the album, apart from the last two songs to me, is, is, has a, this space that it's not cluttered. This is, this, just, this tune in particular is very cluttered for me and, yeah, lyrically doesn't really do much for me and, yeah, it's, a, for me, a bit of a disappointment finish to a, to a really great album and, and that's, I guess, you know, I've mentioned this before that Billy Joel's albums for me are, you know, moments of brilliance, moments of things I like, and moments of things I think, ooh, don't want to hear that again. And unfortunately, this is one of those for me. Um, you know, I'm sure there's folks out there that don't agree with that, but um, it's still, you know, as we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think this was a, a great album, and I, I still, you know, love this album, and and uh, it stands for me as, you know, the, the my favourite thing Billy Joel has ever done, but, yeah, this last one sort of leaves it on a bit of a flat note for me. Look, I, I, I'll take issue. I, I certainly, yeah, lyrically, this is one of the weaker songs on the album, and you know, as I've gone and said, but um, I don't think it is musically cluttered. I think everything in its in its place. It's not it's not heavily arranged or anything like that. I think it's quite simple. There's, um, uh, it, it's. It, I wouldn't say it's sparse, but it's certainly no one playing a million notes per minute, and Richard T's playing is, you know, as always, very, very tasteful, um, and, you know, Liberty knows where to pull back, and, um, no, look, it, yeah, sorry, no, I, I'll, I'll have to, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one, but, <laughs> but, I, well, but we do both agree that lyrically it's a bit of a, a wet blanket on the rest of the album, and as we mentioned earlier, the nice touch is once everybody has a dream is faded out, the, um, I guess the hidden track, if you want to call it that, is like a two-minute reprise of the um, intro theme to uh, the song The Stranger. Which should have gone for ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you say, there's probably a bootleg out there with it on it. All right, look, um, I think that's pretty much covered. We've been speaking for almost an hour about this album, so yeah, it's not a bad, not a bad run. Um, so uh, we'll just take another very quick break, and we've got some feedback. And... Um, yeah, so you're, we'll be back in a, in a moment or so. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris and Michael. GGTMC Live For you, fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. 
The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. Welcome back to the show. Now, we have some feedback here from Eric Reanimator, and given that he put so much effort into putting his little segment together, I thought, well, he needs an intro all his own. So, he's listening to Eric. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. One, two, one, two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. album that I love, the 1990 record by Mother Love Bone, Apple. A couple years ago, I was at a pub trivia night at a local place, and one of the bonus questions was, the album Temple of the Dog was dedicated to whom? And of course, I knew the answer was Mother Love Bone lead singer Andrew Wood. And this had been a bonus question where if you got it right, you got to collect a little prize. And I went up to collect the prize, and the guy standing in front of me looked ahead of us in line, looked behind us in line, and turned to me and said, kind of figures, it's all us old guys standing up here. And I thought, yep, it's all us old guys who bothered to read the liner notes, and hopefully all us guys that bothered to check out Apple. Mother Love Bone grew out of two Seattle bands, Green River and Malfunction. And it really was the marriage of core members, Andrew Wood with Stone Gossard and Jeff Ahmed. Andy wanted to be a rock star. He loved Kiss, he loved Cheap Trick, he loved Elton John, he loved Aerosmith. And it was filtering all of these sounds together through what became known as grunge that created the Mother Love Bone sound. Now, it's not completely grunge. It is a transitional album. It is an album caught between the hair metal world of Warrant and the grunge world of Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam. At the same time, it has a healthy dose of glam. Andrew was a great songwriter. Just want to pause here to listen to a little bit of one of his great compositions, Till the Ocean. Do I enjoy these games? Why did I chase her and why did she stay? on that track you can hear just a little bit of that grandiose 70s glam rock sound but one of the things that made him great and made Mother Love Bone great was that they could do both the ballads and the rock and roll or the hard rock so here's a little example of some of that (laughs) 
songs only that last one should be familiar it was used in the film singles and was on the soundtrack and it wasn't the only million selling record that Andy Wood wound up on posthumously Apple which had gone out of print was combined with the Mother Love Bone EP Shine and a bonus track and released on a two CD set just called Mother Love Bone Jeff Ahmet and Stone Gosser did go on to form Pearl Jam the rest of the members of Mother Love Bone did play in various Seattle bands. And anybody wanting to learn more about Andy Wood, there's a great documentary called The Andrew Wood Story that has been released on DVD and it actually comes with two CDs of his music and recordings. So let's end with just a little bit more of Crown of Thorns. It's been Eric Reanimator with an album that I love and I'll catch you guys next time. Until you know in the states, but I don't care. Um, but I could have spoken to him for for hours and hours, and in the end, I had to just say, "Look, you know, it's this is lovely and great, but I, I don't want to take up any more of your time." And he really didn't make any mumblings during our conversation that he was ready to finish, and it was uh, yeah, um, an absolute joy. I get the feeling he would have talked a lot longer if you'd let him. I could have, I really could have, and there's so much more we could have touched on. Um, but uh, you know, maybe an excuse later on to go back to him in a year's time and uh, and uh, and start again on on a different tack, maybe. Mm. All right. Well, anyway, um, so that's uh, wrapped up this puppy, and I hope uh, that you've enjoyed the show. Hope you've enjoyed our uh, dissection of Billy Joel's A Stranger, and if you've dismissed it, maybe give it another go. And if you enjoy it, I hope that our thoughts have uh, helped enhance your enjoyment of the album. So we'll see you again in a couple of weeks on uh, episode 20 of uh, Love That Album. I didn't think I was going to get this That's a significant milestone, mate. Well, it, it, is, it is for me. I, I didn't think I was going to get beyond one or two of these. So, You're never right? going to run out of albums I that are worthy to talk about. I don't think so. All right. Anyway, thanks very much, Michael, for being with us here. And thanks, mate. Great, thank great to be here, and uh, thank you for your hospitality. Hopefully we can uh, do this in person more, uh, more than once every year. I'll drink to that. All right. Okay. See you, listeners, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with Love That Album. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 